0: Okay, we're streaming so um, let's go ahead and pray and we'll get started Father, thank you for this day um, and this cold and, and wet day that you've given us to um, come together and to study your word particularly tonight to, to think about how we can honor you uh, through our worship would you uh, teach us to know your ways and to um, follow your ways as we worship and uh, would you renew our hearts uh, as we uh, come to worship each and every Lord's Day to, to worship you. Uh, would you use this time to enrich our experiences on Sunday? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, you'll remember last week, we started talking about worship. Um, we got about halfway through those notes. So, what I've done, <laughs> the, what was supposed to be the second half last week is still the second half this week. Um, because I, I figured it was a good opportunity to talk about covenants. And because uh, we talked about kind of some nuts and bolts stuff with worship last week, uh, the elements of worship, and so you'll remember the difference between elements and forms and circumstances. Elements are the things we do, forms are the way that we do those things, and circumstances are the kind of ancillary um, pieces of that. And so tonight we're going to be looking mostly at form. So we've, we've kind of looked at elements, and those are kind of individual little things that we do. So, you know... We pray, we read scripture, we sing. But the next question we have to ask is how do all those things fit together? So if we've, if we've got all these things we need to be doing, um, is there a biblical order for those? Is there a biblical way to do that? Does the Bible give us guidance on how to order those things? Um, my short answer is yes. Now, I don't think that um, this is as clear as the elements of worship. And I'm not saying that um, if you don't do it exactly this way that you're sinning or that you're doing something unfaithful, but I do think that this is the best way to do things, and um, I, I prefer to do things this way for a variety of reasons. And we'll look at several orders of worship throughout the Bible, and look at covenants, and kind of see how this, all this fits together, and how that relates to um, worship in our day and age. But the first place we want to start um, is talking about what a covenant is. So, Reformed theology is covenant theology. Reformed theology is covenant theology. Um, covenant theology is a hermeneutical system. So another one is the other most common one in um, American evangelicalism is dispensationalism. And we are not dispensationalists. We are covenant theologians. But the, the basic premise is this. God interacts with his people through covenants. Um, and I, we'll d- define that in a minute. And he's, he's given us two major covenants throughout history, the covenant of works with Adam, and the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace unfolds throughout history until we come to the new covenant, which is the fulfillment, the highest form of the covenant of grace. And I'll explain that more in a minute. And so all of our scripture reading is looking at it through that framework. Um, that's not to say that's the only thing we look at or the only thing we consider when we're reading scripture. But that's the broad way we look at redemptive history. So we, we kind of ask the question, what covenant are we in? And I think I mentioned this some uh, last semester when we talked about Genesis. Uh, because a lot of these covenants are in Genesis. There's, there's several covenants that um, come out of Genesis. Um, so a covenant, um, O. Palmer Robertson has written the um, most popular, probably, book on uh, covenants. It's called Christ of the Covenants. And he defines covenant as a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. A bond in blood sovereignly administer. Now, um, lots of, there's language in our Confession about Covenants. Chapter um, 7 of the Confession of Faith is about covenants. But really in the last hundred years, and I'm not saying that all that stuff is wrong, in fact I agree with it, but in the past hundred years we've actually made lots of advances in in some ancient Near Eastern studies and kind of seeing what the culture was like Um, in the Old Testament, what the culture was like around um, the establishment of the people of Israel, and so that, and that kind of enriches our reading of Genesis, Exodus, um, and the rest of the Old Testament, particularly those two books. Um, so the New Testament word that we see for covenant is diatheke, uh, so Hebrews 9, that word appears about ten times. Um, the Old Testament word is bereith, and so that's related to the word to cut, and so that's where you see um, the, the blood language, there's cutting involved in a covenant. Which, by the way, you know, we don't really see much blood in the New Covenant, but we do have the blood of Christ. That's, the, that's part of what Hebrews 9 is saying, that that's the blood in the New Covenant. Um, covenants include parties. So when, when you establish a covenant, you have a, um, two parties agreeing together to come into a familial relationship. So when God creates Adam and there's a covenant there, they're coming into a familial re- relationship together. Um, We can also think of marriage. Marriage is a covenant. And what happens when you get married? You create a family, right? So you're coming into a familial bond together. And so um, there has to be at least two parties. And then there are stipulations and laws associated with that. So again, if we think about a marriage uh, covenant, you have a man and a woman. They come together, and they make vows to each other. And so these vows kind of establish the stipulations and the law, And then we have signs and seals of covenant. So one example in a marriage would be a wedding ring, is a sign of the covenant of marriage. Um, And that's what we we could also call these sacraments, and we'll talk about sacramentology in way more detail in the coming weeks. But this is what makes a covenant. You have two parties coming into an agreement together, making vows to each other, making stipulations together, and then signing and sealing that covenant. So this is how God interacts with his people is through covenants. Um, just a little historical context, and this is some of the the biggest um, some of the biggest advances we've made in ancient Near Eastern studies in the past hundred years. Um, are these ancient Near Eastern suzerain vassal treaties? So a suzerain is like a higher lord, a vassal is a lower lord, and so you'd have these kings covenanting together, these nations covenanting together, <clears throat> and forming uh, familial bonds. And so, um, in the ancient Near East, you had two kinds of covenants. You had equal parity covenants, where people of equal stature were coming together. But you also had these suzerain vassal covenants. And all of our biblical covenants between man and God are suzerain vassal. Why? Because God is high and above all things. And um, we, we don't come to God on equal standing. God is standing over and above us. And so, we have a pattern from these Hittite treaties. So, you're probably familiar with the Hittites from the Bible, they they kind of pop up here and there. But we have these Hittite treaties that um, look very similar to biblical covenants, and I've I've laid out the structure there for what that looks like. Um, There's a preamble, which identifies the parties. There's an account of a historical relationship. There are stipulations with blessings and curses and a guide for renewal. And there's a covenant seal. And you'll actually see, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, it follows this pattern almost exactly. And so, um, we're going to look in terms of these covenants in terms of, we're going to look at these covenants in terms of these parts and pieces, uh, the parties, the stipulations, and the signs and seals. Um, But note that this this isn't something that um, is foreign to the people of Israel when when God is doing this. It's not something that's new, although I would say that God invented it. It's not like, um, it's not like God was stealing something from the Hittites to cobble together a way to do um, redemption, but... um, it's an, it's interesting to see how this plays out. This isn't just something that's unique to Christianity, um, or Judaism for that matter, or Israel. It's something that is that was played out in um, their culture, and also it's played out today when we talk about marriage and, and adoption is another kind of covenant that we that we have. So that's a very broad overview um, of covenants in general. Now we're going to kind of dive down and look at the two covenants that God makes with man. So the first is the covenant of works, sometimes called the covenant of life, which is, a, you know, people debate about that terminology. But this is the covenant that God made with Adam. And so if we flip over to Genesis 1, uh, we're going to read a little bit about that. And we'll actually, or Genesis 2, excuse me. We'll actually return to Genesis 2 and talk about biblical orders of worship, because I would say that there's, there's one in here. <clears throat> So, starting at Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will, make a, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living thing, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper, a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that, God, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, "'This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh.'" So verse 25 really goes with chapter 3, but that's a different discussion. But you'll, you'll see that um, we have all these elements of a covenant. So you have the Lord God, and you have Adam. And so God takes Adam, forms him out of the dust of the ground, and then he gives him stipulations. He says, work and keep the garden. Don't eat, uh, you can surely eat of every tree, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, He also establishes a a Sabbath principle that we see in Genesis 1, where he works for six days and rests for the seventh. He establishes marriage. He he brings together the man and the woman. And he establishes work. Adam is called to work and to keep the garden. So we have some specific stipulations that are dealing just with Adam's situation, but also some general stipulations that still even apply to us today. So the Sabbath principle, marriage, and the institution of work still apply to us. It's no accident that, you know, it's not like the whole world is Christian or the whole world is um, Jewish, right? But it's no accident that everybody in the world uses a seven-day week, right? So um, God covenants with Adam. He establishes these stipulations. He promises blessings and curses that go with these. So um, the blessing that goes with it is that they'll eventually be able to eat of the tree of life. Um, that's kind of implied in the text, although it's not totally clear. Um, And he establishes signs and seals. So the sacrament, the the sign and seal of the covenant of works that initiates us is birth. So you're born into the covenant. But then also Adam and Eve are supposed to be able to eat from the tree of life. They're supposed to be able to eat from the the tree of life when that gives them continual renewal, continual life. And so you have a, a sacrament, a sign of initiation... And the sacrament are a sign of renewal. And so we have a covenant, right? We have the parties, we have the stipulations, the blessings, and the curses. And we have sacraments that initiate and renew the covenant. Now, obviously, Adam fell. We've we've probably all read Genesis 3. So Adam fell. um, Adam sinned. And so now we are barred from the tree of life. We're all born under the covenant of works. But none of us is able to access the, the tree of life. Um, Because it's locked up in the garden, and you know the the flood destroyed all that, Um, and so we have we have no access to eternal life like Adam and Eve had. So God, because He's gracious, established with us a new covenant. And if you jump over to Genesis three, verse fifteen, God says, "I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman; between your offspring and her offspring." He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so Adam falls, and then immediately God makes a promise that he'll redeem his people, that the serpent is going to be crushed by the seed of the woman. And so this is um, implied, the establishment of the covenant of grace. This gets unfolded as we go forward throughout redemptive history. But this is the beginning of God's promise to redeem his people. So the covenant of grace is promised in Genesis 3.15, But then we we move forward to Noah. God redeems Noah from the flood. Uh, We move forward to Abraham, and God calls a people to himself. He makes a people, a nation out of Abraham. Then we move forward to the Mosaic Covenant. We'll look at this later, too. Um, And so this, this unfolding of the covenant of grace, this unfolding of the plan of redemption over time, happens throughout the Old Testament. And it's all starting in Genesis 3.15. So this covenant of grace finds its final fulfillment... In the new covenant. And Jesus establishes this officially at the institution of the Lord's Supper. He takes the cup and he says, This is the new covenant in my blood. Right? So he's establishing and starting the new covenant there. And it's fully established in his death and resurrection. And so in this new covenant, in this covenant of grace, the parties are God again, but then we have Christ as our head instead of Adam. And so it's actually flipped to Romans 5. And Romans 5 kind of uh, unpacks this um, concept. The covenant of grace is replacing and uh, superseding the covenant of works. So if we look at uh, Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given. Yet death reigned, excuse me, before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, between the covenant of Adam, the covenant that Adam has with man, where he's condemned, he's under sin, he's under death, and the covenant with Christ, the covenant that uh, we have in Christ as our covenant head, whereby we have life, we have justification, we have salvation. And and Adam, so the language of type, Adam is a type of Christ, so sometimes we'll say the language that Christ is the second Adam. He's creating a new humanity. And that's why when Jesus tells Nicodemus, he must be born again. You're born into a new humanity, right? So the parties are God uh, and the elect with Christ as their head. The stipulations, or the stipulation is covenant faithfulness. Now, people sometimes hear that and think that this is salvation by works. And I want to be clear that that's not what I'm saying. We're justified by faith alone. We're justified by grace through faith alone. But we're also called to persevere, and the Bible consistently warns about apostasy. So one place you can look that's very clear on this is Hebrews 6. Uh, where well, let's, let's turn there while we're close. We can go to Hebrews 6. And the author of Hebrews warns of apostasy. So this, this whole um, passage is relevant, but we can start um, in verse 3. Chapter 6, verse 3. Or verse 4, excuse me. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So, that sounds very harsh, right? It sounds... Like, um, we can truly be saved and then lose it. Now, we're talking about covenants, remember, and um, we'll talk about this more when we get to sacramentology, but there's a clear warning here that apostasy is possible. This isn't just a hypothetical warning, right? You can really be a part of the covenant. You can really be a part of God's people and fall away. Um, Now, that's not to say that God's elect can ever fall away. God has... Uh, redeemed a specific people, a people that he's called to himself. And those whom God calls, those whom God foreknows, he's predestined to be to eternal life. And so we'll work through all that when we get to sacraments, because we'll talk about that when we get to baptism and Lord's Supper. Um, but for right now, just know that the Holy Spirit works in us to keep us persevering. The Holy Spirit works in us so that we are continually united to the covenant. The Holy Spirit works in us so that we produce good works. And justifying faith, faith that justifies is the faith that works. So um, we are kept, the stipulations of the covenant are the law of God. And you can look at um, the confession of faith, chapter 19, talks about the law of God still applying to us. The Ten Commandments still apply to us. Um, But we're not doing the works on our own. Does that make sense to everybody? So we're called to do good works. God, God commands good works. Uh, and God commands good works in order that we can persevere with, to salvation. But those works don't save us, and those works do not come from us. Right? Those works are the power of the Holy Spirit working in us by grace. Does everybody follow that? So, um, Now, that does not, again, we, we kind of want to avoid two ditches. On, on the one hand, uh, we don't want to say that um, works are not necessary, that we can just, you know, have faith, and that that's enough, independent of works. Because what does James say? Faith without works is dead. But we also don't want to say that those works are somehow justifying. And so, it's a complicated thing. We'll talk about it more when we get to sacraments. But um, covenant faithfulness is how it's the stipulation of the covenant of grace. And then the sacraments of the covenant of grace are baptism, which is the sacrament of initiation. And the Supper, which is the sacrament of renewal. So we come into the covenant um, by baptism, and then we renew the covenant with the Lord's Supper, which is part of the reason um, we don't re-baptize people here. So um, if you fall away from the covenant, then the way back into the covenant is not through another baptism. The way back into the covenant is by coming and receiving the Lord's Supper. That's the, the sacrament of renewal. And so these are the two sacraments in the covenant of grace. Now, all of this covenant language, all this covenant talk is a precursor to worship. And what I'm going to contend is that worship is covenant renewal, particularly Lord's Day worship when we come to worship on Sunday. So, you know, it's perfectly fine. You can worship other places. You can worship at home. You can worship um, at a prayer meeting. But God specifically sets apart Sunday morning, or Sunday, as a time where we come together and renew the covenant with God. And if you remember, if you flip back um, to the Suzerain Vassal Treaties here under 1.1, you can see that under the stipulations, there is actually a guide, um, in, in general with these Hittite Treaties, for regular renewal of the covenant. So, there's a guide in general for, um, for these covenants to be renewed, and so God actually gives us that, and he gives us the Sabbath for this purpose. So, I've printed Exodus 31, 16, and 17 here, um, talking about the Sabbath. So God says, Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations, as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, we don't believe that... Well, we, we believe in the enduring character of the moral law. So we believe that the Ten Commandments still apply to us today. All Ten Commandments. Now, there's different kind of flavors of this. Um, most Baptists that I've run across believe that only Nine Commandments, There are people that have thought about this, um, believe that only Nine Commandments apply. Because they would say that the Sabbath command is not repeated in the New Testament, but the other Nine Commands are. Um, But confessionally, our confession of faith says, no, because we're all in one covenant of grace, the law applies continually. Now, parts of the law, for example, the ceremonial law, are abrogated because Christ fulfills those things. The civil law doesn't apply to us anymore because we don't live in the state of Israel, but the moral law, things like the Ten Commandments, things that tell us right and wrong, those still apply to us, and that includes the Sabbath. So some people say the Sabbath is a ceremonial law, but... As I pointed out, it's instituted in the covenant of works way before uh, we get to the Mosaic Law and it's an enduring principle and sign of the covenant. So, the Confession of Faith, chapter 21, takes that principle and it applies it to worship for us. It says, as it is the law of nature, notice it's the law of nature that we set aside a time for worship, it, 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 as it is the law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in his word, by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him. So the, the confession of faith appeals both to nature, that there's something built into the world that demands a Sabbath, but also to the Positive moral law, the thing that God commands that we are to keep the Sabbath. Then it says, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed to the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as a Christian Sabbath. So we'll talk more about that in just a second when we get to some of these Scriptures. But what we call the Lord's Day now, Sunday, we call it the Lord's Day because of this verse from Revelation, but um, is the new Sabbath. And so the Sabbath up up till Christ was the seventh day, and then after the resurrection, it becomes the first day. This Sabbath is then kept holy unto God, wherein men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. And I'm not going to unpack that necessarily. Um, and people quibble about the recreations, whether that's okay. Um, and I'll tell you, the, the more I think about this, the less I would take an exception to this. Um, what, what they're intending by recreations is worldly recreations. So, you know, you can go play catch with your kids in the front yard, and that's, you know, that's not a violation of uh, the Sabbath law. Um, but it, it might be, you know, NFL football might be, right? And I'm not going to unpack that right now. But <laughs> um, so we have this, this, the Sabbath is the principle. This is the sign of, one of the signs of the covenant. Um, so we're going to look at these four scriptures really quick before we go into biblical orders of worship. Um, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 5 is a restatement of the Ten Commandments. So, um, we talked about this last semester, but the Ten Commandments happened twice. They happened in Exodus 20, and they happened again in Deuteronomy 5. And it's particularly interesting with respect to the Fourth Commandment, the Sabbath Commandment, because the reason given for the Fourth Commandment is different in Deuteronomy than it is in Exodus. The reason for that is because in Exodus, the redemption from Egypt had not yet happened fully. The old generation was still alive, and they needed to die because they had sinned. And so, Deuteronomy 5 is on the other side of this death of the old generation and rising up of a new generation. And so this is what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock. Or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So it's very important that this reason is changed. If you look at Exodus twenty, the reason given for the Sabbath day is the creation. So that is an appeal to the natural law, which is what the confession of faith is getting out there. There's a law of nature built into the world that we rest on the seventh day. But here, there's a redemptive motivation, that God has redeemed us from our oppressors. Now, for us, our oppressors, we're, we're not, no, no longer dealing with uh, the elementary principles of the world, oh, no, no longer dealing with, with the things of the world, we're dealing with spiritual realities, with powers and principalities, is what Paul says. And so our oppressor is sin, our oppressor is death, And God has redeemed us from that. And so that would be our motivation. And Egypt is a type of that. Egypt is pointing forward to death and sin that we're redeemed from. And so this commandment still applies to us. We're still called to keep it. Now let's flip ahead. Today's Bible drill is not going to be as intense as it was last week, but there is a little bit of it. So flip ahead to Acts 20. Acts 20, verse 7. And we mentioned this a little bit last week. This is about Eutychius. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. So this is kind of a rehash of something I said last week. The implication here, when he says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, um, the implication is that this is a normal habit. This is something they do continually. Um, I I forget what, what illustration I used last week, but... Um, it, it would like me being saying on, on it would like it would be like me saying on Sunday when we go to church, right? This is something we do a regular pattern. And so they're drawing from that. And so we see in the book of Acts, with the early church, while the apostles are still alive, they've established this pattern of first day, Sunday worship. We can also look at First Corinthians uh, 16, which we looked at a little bit last week. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, so this is the offering. As I direct to as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And so again, the implication is that they're actually gathering together on the first day of the week, and so the first day of the week is when they take up the offering, which, you know, there's no, nothing wrong with, you know, bringing your check on Monday for your offering or whatever, but um, there's, there's a clear implication here that what they're doing is they're gathering together, they're bringing together the offering for Paul and for those who need it. And then if you've ever noticed, we can flip to Revelation 1 next, you've ever noticed something quirky about Presbyterians, um, we always refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day. And so if you open the bulletin, uh, the, the front cover this week will say the fourth Lord's Day after Epiphany. And if you look at the um, like top of the page on the order of worship, it says Lord's Day service. And so um, Presbyterians do that. But here's the reason why. So John, in the book of Revelation, says, well, let's start in verse 9 of chapter 1. I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation... And the, kingdom, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So he's, he's using a term that would have been known, right? It's, it's not a, he's not inventing a term, right? He's calling it the Lord's day. And kind of reading between the lines here a little bit, he's writing this letter to people. He's writing the Revelation to these seven churches, and the assumption is that they know what he means by the Lord's Day. And so, uh, certainly, Revelation is a pretty late book. Um, I personally think it was written, like, in 68, 69 AD. That's just my personal... That That's actually a minority view. Most people think it was written in the 90s. Um, but, I'm not going to get into why I think that's the case. But, it's a pretty late New Testament book, relative to some of the others. And, and, Um, you can see that by the time, within 40, 50, 60 years after Jesus, if you take even the late date, they're referring to Sunday as the Lord's Day. And so there's already this pattern, and and you don't see any explicit commands, and Kathy asked about this last week, you don't see any verse that says, you must worship on Sunday. But what's clear from the Bible is that there's a pattern established by the apostles that um, there was no need for a command, that they were already gathering on the first day of the week as a pattern each and every week. Um, You even see that, I won't flip there, but in Acts, Pentecost, the disciples are gathered together on Sunday. They're gathered together and having a worship service, essentially, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on them at Pentecost. And that's, by the way, exactly 50 days after the ascension, so um, it's interesting, but or the resurrection, excuse me. I won't go into that. But that's part of the reason we worship on Sunday is because it seems that God has established this as the day, right? Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday, Forty days later, he's ascended. And then on the 50th day, we are worshiping again when the Holy Spirit is poured out, which is seven weeks after the resurrection, seven sevens. And so there seems to be um, a Holy Spirit-inspired reason for us to worship on Sunday. And so we take this Sabbath principle the, that we work six, rest one, and we apply it in the New Covenant to the way that God has established um, that we worship on Sunday. <clears throat> any questions about that at this point? Do we have any Seventh-day Adventists in the crowd that want to debate that? Okay. So, we've talked about covenants. We've talked about Sabbath, which is a sign of the covenant. And, and God sets up in Exodus 31 the, this fact that we're going to come on the Sabbath day, and that's, that's a covenant renewal day. That's kind of what Exodus 31.16 is getting at. And so what we're, what we're going to do now is we're going to look at how covenants are established, how covenants are renewed in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at one example in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And what I'm arguing for is that this pattern of worship is the pattern of worship that we should try to mold ourselves after. Because, again, we live between Leviticus and Revelation and we want to be in this this line, this historical line of Israel all the way to the the church of God in the future, the the triumphant church. And if we want to be in line with the people of God throughout history, we want to be in line with um, the way that they have worshipped and the way that God has commanded them to worship. And so we're going to look at five different orders of worship. The first one is Adam's order of worship in Genesis. Then we'll look at the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus. We'll look at the ordination of the priests in Leviticus. And then we'll look at the building and the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles. But you'll notice, uh, we'll also look at Revelation as the last one. Um, What were the other four, the exclusion of Revelation? There's always a fall after these big covenant ceremonies where um, God establishes a pattern of worship. So... After the worship service in Genesis 2, Adam falls, and then Cain immediately falls after that. After God establishes the covenant in Exodus, the next thing that happens is the golden calf incident. After the priests were ordained in Leviticus, the next thing that happens is that Nadab and Abihu bring strange fire before God. So they're doing some sort of offering wrong. And then in 2 Chronicles, after the establishment of the temple, uh, Jeroboam, who's the king of the northern tribes of Israel, apostatizes, and he, he overthrows the worship of God um, for a variety of reasons and builds these um, baals, these calf gods to worship at Dan and um, Bethel. So it's interesting that every time God establishes a pattern of worship, every time God tells us how to worship, every time uh, people do the worship right, The next thing that happens is that they mess it up real bad. (laughs) And so let's try not to do that. Um, Fortunately, we live on the other side of Jesus. We live in his forgiveness. Um, But it's important to to note that continual fall that uh, people are tempted to. We're tempted to idolatry. We're tempted um, to um, do this wrong. So let's start by going to Genesis 2. Now you'll notice I've got an order here, and um, if you've, I don't know if you've noticed this on the bulletin, so I put these headings in here on the bulletin every week. Um, because, first of all, it's easy to remember the five C's, but call, cleansing, consecration, communion, and commission. And so we're going to look at Adam, his are not in order, so, um, but I would argue that all five elements are there. Um, cleansing is an interesting one, we'll talk about that. But you actually see this pattern kind of fully fleshed out, beginning with Moses. That there's this pattern of covenant renewal um, throughout the Old Testament. So let's start by looking at Adam. We've already read it, so I won't read it again, but we start off with a call. Now, Adam is called out of the dust, right? God uh, speaks the world into existence, and then God breathes into Adam and and makes, makes him a living being, a living man. And so God calls him, and then he gives him these stipulations, and so this is what we would generally call consecration, right, that, that he's the stipulations and law of the covenant is God uh, consecrating his people and making them um, his. We also see in verse 16 that God gives him food to eat, and so this covenant that God is making with Adam is sealed by a meal, and the, the highest picture of this meal is the tree of life that is in the center of the garden, Um, And then he fulfills his commission to keep and to guard. And you see that in verses 18 through 24. Um, Now it's interesting, there's there's actually a cleansing, which you wouldn't think that there would be a cleansing before sin entered the world. But um, you'll notice that in verse 18, God says, it is not good that man should be alone. So there's something before the fall that is not good, and it needs to be rectified. Now, like, this is not sin. It's not, it's not Adam's sin. It's not God's um, deficiency that it causes. He's, he's showing us something here. But there's a cleansing, right? Adam has, and we have to be careful how we do this, but Adam has a little death, right? Where he, he goes to a deep sleep, and then he's resurrected, and he has a wife, right? And so I'm not saying that he died. I'm not saying that there's death before the fall. But there's a prefigurement of that, that God redeems us by bringing us down and bringing us back up. And so there's a cleansing of the creation. There's something deficient in creation that God is rectifying by the creation of Eve. And so you see these five elements here. Now again, those are out of order. It's, you know, we're not getting... There's a lot going on in Genesis 1 through 3. And um, so it, Genesis 2 is not a manual on how to do worship, but you see all those elements there. Something more clear, though, is going to be when we get to Moses' order of worship. So flip ahead to Exodus 19. Now, the people have been moving through the wilderness. They're going um, over to the promised land. And so they come to Mount Sinai. And so we see these five elements, call, cleansing, consecration, and communion and commission in um, Exodus 19 through 24. So Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon... After the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim, encamped in the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle's wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant; you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So the first thing God does is he lays claim to Israel. He says, "Israel, you're going to be my treasured possession," and he calls them to himself at, through through Moses. He's saying, "Gather around and hear what I have to say." Now, jumping ahead to verse ten. So he gathers the people together, and then God says to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai, in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for all the people around, saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And so, jumping to verse 14, Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments and he said to the people, be ready for the third day and do not go near a woman. And I won't go into that right now. But what they're doing is they're gathering together and they are cleansing themselves. They're doing these little baptisms, right? They're washing their garments. They're washing themselves. The next thing that happens is that God lays out the Ten Commandments. God lays out the his law. And so we have the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and then... 21 through 24, so this is several chapters, or 21 through 2410, um, this is called the Book of the Covenant. And so God is laying out the stipulations for the covenant. He's laying out his law. So this would be somewhat analogous to what happens when we read Scripture, when we hear a sermon, right? That God, through those things, is laying out his law, laying out his stipulations before us, and calling us to live in a certain way and to do certain things. So the next thing that happens... Um, now, all the people, there's, there's a whole ceremony that goes on from uh, chapter 24, verses 3 through 10. The people are sprinkled with blood. And this is the final consecration. And then, verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So, God calls people together, they wash themselves, he gives them the book of the covenant, he gives them the law, and Then the elders, as representatives of the people, are able to eat a meal with God. So this is a seal of God's covenant. A seal, a promise, that God is not going to destroy them. Right? It says God did not lay his hand on them, and, and that's a negative thing, to have your hand on, be laid on by God, in this particular instance. Um, to have God lay his hand on you. But, they actually eat with God, and this is a sign of peace. To sit down at somebody's table, uh, you're not going to do that with your enemy or someone that you, you're at strife with, right? It's a, it's a sign that we are coming together in peace and that, that God is claiming them as his own. And then there's a commissioning. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here. For us to return, until, for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron or her with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. And so they have this big worship service. They're sprinkled with the blood. There's a meal, and then the last thing is that they're given instructions and they're sent out and they're told, "Go live your lives now." We're going to go do Moses and um, is going to go Moses and Joshua are going to go do some business with God. But you guys are sent out into the world, or sent out into the, the camp in this instance, um, to live your lives. So, we see that order in Exodus 19 through 24. Any questions about that? Anything jumping out there? Okay. So, the next one we want to look at is Leviticus 8. And um, I talked about this a little bit um, last semester. But Leviticus 8 is the ceremony for the ordination of priests. And so we've talked about the five sacrifices. There's the whole burnt offering. There's the sin offering. There's the peace offering, the trespass offering. And we see some of these here. So um, starting in verse 1 of Leviticus 8, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bowl of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the tent of meeting. So Moses goes and does that. And so the first thing that happens is God lays claim to Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and says, these are going to be my priests. And so he reaches out and he calls them together, and he calls the assembly together for this ordination service. The next thing they do is they do a cleansing. So verse 10, Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and basins and stands to consecrate them. And then jumping to four, verse 14, he does that on Aaron's head and with his sons. And he closed them. Verse 14, Then he brought the bowl of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bowl of the sin offering. And he killed it, and Moses took the blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar, around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. I'm not going to go into that, but that's interesting that we're making atonement for the altar. And he took the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung, he burned up with fire outside the camp, as the Lord commanded Moses. And so, the people are called together, they're established into an assembly, and the first thing they do is they do the sin offering. They atone for their sin. They take the, the blood of the bulls, they take the meat of the bulls, they burn it on the on the uh, altar, and the nasty stuff, the entrails, the legs, the stuff that doesn't go on the altar goes outside the camp to be burnt. So there's a call and there's a cleansing. Next, verse 18, then he, Moses, presented the ram of the burnt offering. And you'll remember the burnt offering is the ascension offering. So the burnt offering, the whole animal's burnt up. And so this is representative of the people of, in this particular instance, Aaron and his sons, it's them being burnt up, and it's them being offered in their whole person to God, right? And so this is where the same language is happening in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, and the whole thing is burnt up and lifted up to God. The next thing we see is the ram of ordination, which is a peace offering, as we'll see as we get get a little deeper into that. So verse 22, then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And he killed it, and he took some of the blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. He did the same with Aaron's sons. He took the the fat and the fat tail and all that was on the entrails. Um, Sorry, I'm I'm skimming a little bit. So he he did a wave offering. He weighs it before the Lord, and then um, they eat together. So... Sorry, I'm skimming, skimming. Verse 30. Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled on Aaron's garments, um, and also on his son's garments, and he consecrated Aaron and his garments, and his sons and his son's garments with him. Verse 31. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it, and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And he goes on. But they're eating this meal. So this big this offering, there's all sorts of you know, machinery going on and, and liturgical stuff happening. But this offering is for them to eat. And so, again, this is a seal of the covenant that, that God is making with them as he ordains them. <clears throat> and then, uh, verse 33, they're sent out. So you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of the meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are, are, are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As it has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you shall not die, so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. So it ends with some final instructions on what to do when you go out. What to do when this service is over? You stay stay inside the tabernacle complex, continue to offer these offerings. And so we have the five pieces there. The call, the cleansing, the consecration, the communion and the, the and the commission. Um, we're going to skip Solomon's order of worship because I want to go ahead and go to Revelation. But I've part of the reason we're skipping that one is because I've got a little more detail there for you. Um, if you want to go back and look at it yourself. But all this stuff we've been talking about is Old Testament. Does that really apply to us? Um, we're going to look at the Book of Revelation for um, evidence that this is the worship that God has established. So. Revelation, uh, starting in chapter 4, so um, he's just gone through the, the letters to the seven churches, exhorting them. <clears throat> and then he's entering into the temple in heaven, the heavenly place of worship. And so after this, I looked, and behold, a door, verse, this is chapter 4, standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So he goes up. Their are elders sitting there, and they're singing. Uh, the four living creatures are singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And so um, God brings John in, and all the elders and the, the uh, four living creatures are sitting together, and they're praising God, and um, he's establishing worship. Next, in chapter 5, they bring out the scroll. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so there's songs praising God for the Lamb who was slain. Because the Lamb is slain, He can open the scrolls. And so there's this despair, this this feeling of uh, loss and weeping, but God redeems and cleanses and purifies, and by the blood of the Lamb allows uh, the scroll to be opened. Now, um, chapter 6, at the beginning of chapter 19, the scrolls are opened, the judgments are, are proclaimed on the people of the world, on the people of Israel, <clears throat> and so this is a stipulation, this is law, this is judgment, this is proclamation of God. And then we get to uh, chapter 19, starting in, um, well, verse 5, praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then verse 6 begins the, the um, description of the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? And so after all these judgments, after all this purification, after God's people are brought to him, there's a marriage supper that seals the covenant there, <clears throat> And then finally, starting in chapter 20, we have this new kingdom, the defeat of Satan, all these things that are happening, again, outside of the worship service, and the new heaven and the new earth are reunited, and we're called to live um, in this new heaven and new earth, and their descriptions of that. So I'm sorry that revelation thing was fast, but we're running out of time. So, but my point is this the Bible does have an order of worship. And while I don't think that it's a sin not to follow this order of worship, I think that it's advisable to do it because. Um, we see this same pattern over and over and over again every time we see a covenant renewed, a covenant inaugurated. And um, because we live between these things, because we live between the worship in heaven of Revelation and the worship of Leviticus and Exodus, uh, we ought to seek to be in line with those things and seek to be in continuity with those things. So any questions, comments, observations, concerns on any of that? Again sorry I moved fast to those that, those last couple of uh, orders but well, let's pray and the choir can can come in here Father we thank you um, for your word and for giving us the opportunity to study your word and to to see your covenant faithfulness and your covenant promises to us um, and and the, the way that you renew the covenant with us through your supper through your word uh, through um, the sacraments and through the preaching, that you would be gracious to us in that way to offer us your promises. And so, Father, would you teach us to apprehend and and grasp those promises so that we can be saved and we can be renewed and we can join in union with your Son. We ask all this in his name. Amen.